2: Tokyo
3: The Olympics every year, every two years, and then every two years, and every two years, in a way, they confront us with really fundamental questions. What are the limits of physical endurance? Is it possible to play softball without beer? What is Steve Cornacki doing there? eternal questions, questions that we will ponder, I think, well into our senescence, which I'm basically in anyway. So we're going to talk about the Olympics today. There's so much to talk about. It's only a few days old and there's like all this stuff happening, which I guess is sort of also one of the defining characteristics of the Olympics is a lot of stuff happens. So one of the specialists in that stuff Uh, is Ben Waterworth, uh, an Australian journalist and radio host and host of many podcasts, including Off the Podium, a podcast about the Olympics. If you feel as though too much of the Olympics news that you're getting is about uh, American athletes and not enough about Australian and Canadian athletes have I got a treat for you. Um, but actually, uh, off the podium, which I've gotten kind of addicted to, is just sort of fun on lots of different levels. And we're so excited to have Rebecca Schumann, uh, a writer who is covering Olympic gymnastics for Slate. Uh, so much of the drama right now does seem to be just swirling around um, gymnastics. Although, uh, as we go a little bit further in with Ben, uh, later in the show, we're going to talk about like all the sports that you don't We can't talk about all of them. We'll talk about a lot of those words that you don't get to see, you don't think about that much, that are not without their own drama. And Ben, maybe to that point, uh, just as we get started here, you know, I wanted to ask you sort of a question that, that might open up the blossom that is your love of the Olympics. And I was wondering if we could start with... Um, Someone who actually did kind of capture your fancy, Uh, a woman weightlifter who who kind of touched you on the first day, who whose whose emotions kind of summed up, I think, sort of the agony and ecstasy uh, to steal a stale phrase uh, and the ambiguities of the Olympics. Do you, uh, you, you know, I assume you know what I'm talking about. I think you nominated her as your athlete of the day.
4: I did, uh, indeed. Uh, First of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, Good morning to everyone. Uh, It's great to be here at about 10 past three in the morning as I was uh, just discussing. I'm a night owl, so I'm I'm pumped from another day of the Olympics. But yeah, um, Nina Sturks was her name. She finished fifth in the 49 kilo uh, on day one of competition. And it was quite amazing to, to watch her. She's only 18 years of age. And just looked like she was really, really struggling in the initial phase of it, but then kind of overcame everything to get through the clean and jerk phase and basically onto a final lift where she was all but certain that she had lifted this and gotten through it all. The judges ruled it otherwise, and she was eliminated. And, you see her break down and cry and you think she's just absolutely devastated with her performance. But it turns out it was the complete opposite. She was so proud and happy to have made an Olympic final. And then to even finish fifth, she uh, posted on her social media later on how proud and everything she was and just how emotional it was. So, I mean, for 18 years of age, I mean, you know, I'm nearly twice her age and I can barely even lift a quarter of what she was lifting, but it was just incredible to see. And that's just what the Olympics are about. Still after all these years to see those emotions from people who can go out there and do these amazing things that, uh, you know, us us normal folk probably could uh, never dream of doing.
3: Yeah. And I, I think also that ambiguity that that struck you, you initially thought she was crying because she was essentially she didn't make it because of just kind of a technical lapse in form, something most of us wouldn't even have noticed, maybe, you know, but and, and that's but she's actually crying from the exaltation of just having been there and done great things anyway. So, um yeah. and and um, before we get to Rebecca because I really want to talk quite a bit about all the stuff that's going on in gymnastics right now. But maybe just also a word about I don't know the tone of these Olympics is so odd, you know, and we can pick a million different ways to talk about that ranging from the opening ceremonies to but to me one of the thing that really symbolizes it and I think uh, you were the first person I heard mention it is they, no one comes along and, and hangs the medals around the winners, right? They have to, like, just pick them up and yeah. put them on themselves?
4: Yeah, basically. It's sort of the tray comes out, whoever the uh, guest of honor is, to present the medals. And it's it's kind of awkward when you sort of don't realize <laughs> this is what's happening because <laughs> they kind of show it to you and then you pick it up and put it around your neck. And particularly for the individual events, it's really awkward for sort of the team events or the relays and the swimming. It's It's kind of okay because the teammates are – Putting them around each other's neck. So it's kind of a nice little symbol, but. I think that the first one was uh, the, the shooting goal that went on the Saturday and Tom's Bach, the ISE president, was doing it. And I think a lot of people just didn't realize what was going on. So it's kind of awkward to see an Olympic champion or you know, silver or bronze having to kind of give themselves a the medal. I think it kind of, it adds to the, as you mentioned, sort of the oddness of these Olympics. But I guess we're going to remember it always, for many things. And this was that one Olympics where people had to present themselves with a the medal, basically.
3: Yeah, it's like going to a restaurant that only has counter service instead of waiters. You yeah, know, you have to like go. Exactly. Get- Get your food yourself. So, Rebecca, this this fits up in very much with how you see not just these Olympics, but the 19 month long year uh, that has led up to them, which I believe you referred to, Rebecca, as an abject garbage nightmare, not only for not only for humanity, but for gymnastics. Uh, Say a little bit more about that.
0: Well, it's possible. Thank you, first of all, for having me here, mm-hmm. and that was such an amazing story to learn about, Ben. I'm so glad to learn about it. Also, I apologize to everybody for not having an accent as amazing as Ben's. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, well, he, he thinks I you, put you it do on just for this show. It's only just for
0: today. <laughs> well, you're really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. Well. Just with like with a lot of elite sports, gymnastics is a sport where the athletes have to train extraordinarily precisely. All of these high-flying difficult skills that you see them do, they can't learn them all at once. They learn them over periods of months or sometimes years, and it takes them a very, very long time to get them down so well that they're in muscle memory, and then they can put them into a full routine. And the amount of times that gymnasts actually practice full routines at this point is much lower than you might think. And that is because skills are so dangerous that each time they do a full routine, that is basically a risk for injury. So what happened during this bonus COVID year that no one wanted is that a lot of the greatest gymnasts in the world injured out and they actually injured out after the Olympics were originally supposed to have taken place. The biggest heartbreak in the U.S. side is a gymnast named Morgan Hurd, who's just a beautiful, fantastic gymnast, beloved in the gymnastics community, competes in glasses, which everybody loves as well. And she injured her elbow actually after the Olympics were supposed to have. She was looking really good in early 2020 before everything shut down. And then she injured her elbow and required surgery in 2021 and was just not ready to come back and compete for all of the meets that led up to the Olympics. And so she's at home and it's just a, it's a heartbreak.
3: Um, I want you to just quickly um, mention a couple of the the giants. Um, one of them is from that mysterious company, a country called Rock. Um, <laughs> and he is, uh, I think you described him as a, an absolute beast of an all arounder. But uh, explain who he is and what happened to him.
0: Well, this is a young man named Arthur Dalaloyan, and he is from, yes, the country formerly known as Russia. Um, and they actually just, that team just won the team gold medal, kind of snatched it out of the jaws of the host country, Japan, in a total nail-biter of a final. And they did that because Dalaloyan competed on all six men's events. And he competed on all six men's events on an Achilles tendon that was not just injured in April, so that's just uh, a, a one-handed count of months ago, but ruptured. It was torn. It was torn through, and that's the kind of injury that ends a career. When you make an announcement like Arthur Delaunay has ruptured his Achilles, you get mourning. Like that's a that's a death. That's the death of a career. And he just said, "Nope, not today." And he went to surgery and he started training again right after surgery. He didn't do. I mean, he should still be in rehab, and instead he went out there this morning at the very early crack of dawn and and competed all six events and helped Russia win. And I mean, the announcers were just like, he's a hero. He's a beast. I can't even believe it. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, when I was a gymnast in my teens, I slightly injured my Achilles on a tumbling pass once. And I am 44 years old now, and it still hurts. Mm -hmm. So I cannot imagine the Agony that his body was in while he was competing.
3: Right. Uh, I'm going to just suggest uh, in the interest of time that people also read uh, Rebecca's piece about uh, the kind of valedictory uh, competition of Kohei Uchimura, uh, maybe the greatest male gymnast of all time. And he he was one of the people who kind of had a fall. But I I want to segue over here to and and maybe I'll have Ben kind of set us up before we we talk about it. But, um, you know, Ben... It really is true. I think in the United States that we, you know, are maybe a little bit overweening uh, in our enthusiasm for our own athletes. And and you said uh, it. You said it. And maybe <laughs> maybe also have kind of blinders to everything else. I, I mean, Re- Rebecca's uh, careful attention to uh, these uh, gymnasts from other countries, notwithstanding, most Americans can mainly, unless it's somebody like Usain Bolt, who is now in a very sad Michelob commercial. Um, you know, most Americans have trouble naming anybody from. <laughs> any other country. And I'm sort of wondering how, because, you know, Rebecca's going to be talking in just a second about the, the threat to the women's gymnastic U.S. dominance uh, that has suddenly reared up. I mean, how is that uh, not to not to ask you to speak for the entire rest of the world, but please speak for the entire rest of the world, Ben. I mean, how sure. is all this looked upon?
4: Look, I will be completely honest with you until I sort of read Rebecca's piece I wasn't overly familiar with it. Um it's it's quite interesting. I mean obviously Simone Biles is is a huge name who gets a lot of coverage here on our Olympic coverage, but the gym gymnastics is honestly a sport that gets a fair bit of coverage during the Olympics, but it's it's one of the few ones that I think gets it because it's it's popular, people like watching it and Australia never really has an opportunity to do well. I mean, in, in the history of the Olympics, we've only ever won one medal in gymnastics, and that came in Sydney. Uh, Jai Wallace, the has got silver in that uh, those Olympics. So we we don't really have a strong history in the sport, but it's it's always an amazing that we still get quite a bit of coverage. It's kind of like figure skating during the Winter Olympics. We we have no real history in that sport when it comes to medals, of course, but we still are, are fascinated by it. So, yeah, kind of reading Rebecca's piece, it was it was interesting because outside sort of this love for Simone Biles that gets the coverage here in Australia, all of the other stuff around it didn't really get coverage. So our, our coverage was praising Simone and sort of what she was doing, even though they said, oh, she's had a bit of a down day, but she's still done well. She's still amazing and then didn't get all the stuff around it. So... Oh, speaking on behalf of the world, I'll say that maybe the coverage uh, is not quite the way it was that I, I read in Rebecca's piece.
3: Right. I'm also assuming because of Australia being at the bottom of the planet, people are very careful about jumping into the air, right? Because you could just fall yeah, off. Yeah. I mean, because uh, when we
4: jump in the air, it is it's a bit scary. You can fall so right, really right into space doing that. And... I, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Exactly.
3: Um, yeah. So um, so Rebecca, can we begin with Simone Biles? So I I, I until I read uh, Juliet Macer's uh, front page piece in The New York Times, I didn't I see in which... Biles is kind of depicted as this 24-year-old lion in winter, you know, that her body is beat up, her soul is beat up. She feels kind of betrayed uh, because of the Nassar uh, scandal. She says in the piece that she'll compete uh, for her country and for, uh, for black and brown athletes, young black and brown athletes kind of coming up in gymnastics, but not for USA Gymnastics. There is a way in which she comes into these games in, in apparently a pretty different state of mind than she previously has had.
0: Yes, that is accurate. Um, uh, Since the Nassar scandal broke, it took a little while for Simone Biles to come out as a survivor because she obviously had the right to do that on her own timeline. But... From the second that she has done that, she has been a fierce advocate on behalf of the athletes and an incredibly fierce critic of the organization that um, I wouldn't say sponsors her because USA Gymnastics is not famous for its generous funding package, but for, you know, the U.S.'s umbrella organization. Because So what I'll explain to your listeners who might not be overly familiar is that essentially USA Gymnastics knew about Larry Nasser long before... Anybody else did and muddled, like, in, essentially muddled the investigation, made it very hard to investigate him, tried to cover it up. Uh, its former president was actually arrested for trying to cover it up. And basically, as long as the gymnasts were winning gold medals, they were willing to just sort of let the Larry Nasser thing happen. And if it hadn't been for some very brave and very loud gymnasts and the, um, The local reporting from the Indianapolis media, which is where USA Gymnastics is located, breaking the story, this might never have even come out. And so Simone is furious with USA Gymnastics and just really wants nothing to do with them. And if she could be somehow competing without their auspices, she would be.
3: But she also there seemed to be almost a um, in, in that particular piece kind of malaise. She was asked about her her happiest moment in her career. She said, probably my time off. Um, and there was a kind of a sense that at 24, I mean, this does take a pretty big toll on your body. Reading that piece, I was wondering, what kind of athlete am I? I don't know anything about gymnastics, but uh, what kind of athlete am I going to see in these games? Well, she's kind of exploding with energy and power as usual, although maybe a little bit to her detriment so far. The big question, One of the big questions about her is she has so much power. Can she She'd get it under control uh, when she needs to, and and that seems to be coming up here in the first day or two.
0: That was definitely her problem on day one in qualifications, um, where a lot of gymnasts have trouble actually getting their tricks around and landing them. She often gets them around too much and lands too high. And in her floor routine and qualifications, she actually not only stepped out of bounds, but bounded all the way off (laughs) the apparatus. Now, floor is the one apparatus that when you fall, you usually fall on it. Mm. And it's fairly rare to actually fall all the way off the floor, but that is how powerful she is. Yeah. I mean, she didn't want to be still competing. She wanted to, she had it dialed in. She had her training regimen dialed in to make it just to, you know, August of 2020 and then take a victory lap and retire. And when the 2020 games were postponed, she, there were moments where she wasn't actually even sure she was going to do it. She was absolutely devastated. Um, you know, the the level of difficulty she does is so high and her risk of injury is so great that she is training and competing on injured feet and ankles all the time. You will see her ankles being taped up during competition probably. She has said before that her pinky toes on both feet are shattered. And so every time she lands, she's just in excruciating agony. So that's another reason that her landings aren't as clean as they could be because they are... or like painful beyond what we can even imagine. And so, yes, if I were her right now, I would also say that my favorite time was my time off because for her, it's just, it's been too long. She wasn't, I mean, amazingly enough, even though she was the absolute queen of the Rio Olympics, she did have a mistake on balance beam and she's a hyper-perfectionist. She's angry about that still. And she wanted to come back four years later and do better than she did in Rio. So it's just her sheer grit and determination that's keeping her here at this point.
3: I mean, based on what I read, uh, but uh, in your writing and, and other places, I mean, she's really regarded as not only the best gymnast uh, of all time, but, like, way better than whoever is second best and, and does things that are so difficult that they're probably not scored correctly. They're kind of underscored because you know, the scorers aren't just taking into account the difficulty of the stuff that she tries to do. Um, but it seems, yeah, she seems maybe a little bit more human in this Olympics, and as you wrote today, the women's team also is a little bit more human to the point where they are unexpectedly trailing.
0: Yeah, that's right. There is a very good chance that the team formerly known as Russia are going to take this. And, you know, the sort of former Soviet Union has been dominant in gymnastics for the vast majority of the 20th century and part of the 21st as well so they were if the russians win or the not russians win it will kind of restore some order in the universe kind of but this is still anybody's anybody's me to have i did want to talk a little bit about this devaluation that you were talking about yeah because there has been a lot of press about that and mm-hmm. it's actually a little bit more complicated than you might think i would guess she does have one skill that was pu- her beam dismount that's named after her double twisting double tuck that was devalued punitively because the International Gymnastics Federation said, we think this is too dangerous and nobody should attempt it. But in reality, no one else is going to attempt that. There's a term in gymnastics called chucking, which is when you do skills that are too hard for you, if you think they're going to score high, no one chucks a beam dismount because if you do that, you'll die. So no one is going to try to die just to do the Biles Mm -hmm. beam dismount. So that one was punity devalued. Um, Her vault, the Yurchenko double pike, that's gotten a lot of Press about oh this score is too low. It scores too low. But the fact is, a double flipping vault has never been competed in the women's side before, and so there was sort of no the way to assign valuation of it was very complicated. And it's possible that it was like a tenth or two low, but really not. It wasn't like hugely devalued. That's a narrative that people like to grasp onto in America because you know we like to
3: like we, we like said to before say that things
0: aren't fair, yeah. but.
3: Yeah. Absolutely, well so I mean um i got I have sort of two more questions for you. One of them has nothing to do with gymnastics, but it happens to be one thing that I don't think Ben can help me with um so the 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 I guess what should we but the question that precedes that is what do we watch for now? in other words, if the country formerly known as Russia is in the lead i mean how will the how will this shape up how will what should people watch for in terms of a narrative going into the finals?
0: watch for Simone Biles on floor and vault because that's where she's usually hugely ahead of everyone else. And that's where she kind of was a little bit off in qualifying. So in qualifying on floor, she scored about a 14.1. And I know with the quote unquote new scoring system, you're like, what does that mean? That's a good score, but for her, it's way, way, way low. Mm -hmm. So you're going to want to see a floor score in the high 14s at least. Um, So if you see that, then probably the US is okay. On vault again, you're going to want to see a 15 mm-hmm. from her in like 15 to 15, three, like a, like a low to mid 15. So if she's in that range, which is like her more normal range mm-hmm. on those events, these power events on which she is so, so much better than everyone else. Um, then it's probably, I'm not going to say definitely, but it's probably the US is meat to get. What my colleague, Devorah Myers, who's like the Simone Biles of gymnastics writers, has <laughs> said is that the U.S.'s margin of error is Simone Biles' margin of error. Without her doing hugely better than everybody else, it's a much more normal meet, and it's going to be a lot closer.
3: Mm. Okay. I have one uh, quick question for you that has nothing to do with gymnastics, but you've been watching a lot of this stuff on television. So um, what is Steve Kornacki doing? Why, why are they using Steve K- it's it's not like there are really complicated math questions about metals and stuff like that.
0: Well, co- I mean, the scoring system in gymnastics, you said it wasn't right. about gymnastics, um, is extraordinarily complicated because there's a, yeah. an execution score and a difficulty score. Yeah. So I can see that. I can. See, I mean, everyone loves Steve. Yeah. Listen, I'm not. Ga- I like Steve.
3: I'm very happy to see He's going his... to be my
0: like, don't malign my third husband.
3: Yeah, he's he's my trouser idol, too. So uh, I, I just he was just counting medals last night. I thought they could get the count from Sesame Street to do this job. Uh, well, listen, Rebecca Schumann, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about gymnastics. Thank you so much. And so, Ben, we're about to head into, we're going to have a conversation, you and me and and another writer, about the new sports that they've added. But I I guess before we, as as we're doing that, as we're kind of heading into all all of that, I'm wondering, I don't know, like we had the weightlifter to start the show. Has there been something today that's kind of touched you in a similar way, something you've really liked so far?
4: Well, there was a couple. We just finished recording our episode a couple of hours ago, and uh, shameless plug—it is now available for people to download. Uh, but uh, yeah, we we sort of talked up the the Norwegian uh, triathlete who won the gold today, uh, Christian Blumenfeld. It was it was fascinating to see him win because. First of all, we're fascinated by the fact that uh, Norway can produce a triathlete. We usually associate them with, uh, you know, the winter sports. And I mm-hmm. kind of assume it's the same way as they'd probably look at Australia winning a medal at the Winter Olympics. And going, what are you doing winning a, a Winter Olympic medal? But it was sort of the, the manner in which he won it. He kind of crossed the line in sheer ecstasy, you know, excitement, collapses to the ground, and then promptly is shown vomiting all over the ground. <laughs> just He just left everything out there literally on the ground. Uh, the, the course at the end of it, <laughs> but it, it even got to a point here where sort of our, our media in Australia were, were less focused on his win and more focused on his attire because there was, let's say some tight fitting clothing that were quite revealing. So I, I, I kind of, I, I felt it took away from his achievement because uh, we shouldn't be focusing on things like that. It was, it was an amazing achievement and literally seeing this guy physically showing everything he went through with it too um and i was slightly biased our our gold medalist uh around titmus who uh beat the great katie ledecky in the 400 meter freestyle uh as a proud tasmanian she uh was our first ever in the history of the olympics tasmania's first ever individual Olympic gold medalist. We'd had plenty of Tasmanians over the years, one in team events, but uh, yeah, pretty big deal for us to, to have an individual Olympic gold medalist. Actually, so, I'm kind of amazed uh,
3: it took 24 minutes for you to bring that up. Uh, I feel like I'm, yeah, well, have I mean, been, you know, been, uh, I have yeah. been nice. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> All right. So time it well. we're yeah. going to take a quick uh, break. There's some um, new sports being added this year. We're going to talk about what they are and whether they're sticking around for one or two years from now or for the next Olympics in Paris, that is, uh, and how they got to be what they are.
2: Bios gymnastics tremendous. Simone Bios gold medals fantastic. Simone Bios gymnastics rock and roll. Simone Bios rock and roll gymnastics.
3: All right, we're going to just jump in here uh, and talk about some of the new sports that have been added. With us, Ben Waterworth is an Australian journalist and radio host and host of many podcasts, including Off the Podium, a podcast about the Olympics. I would say if you like the way that we talk about things on this show, you probably like Off the Podium. Um, you have to be very, people very interested. swearing though. Yeah, people Maybe swearing side, and so. <laughs> yes, and you have to be very, very interested in Canadian sports. Uh, as well as Australian sports. It has a whole Commonwealth feel to it. Uh, Emily Vanderwerf is joining us. Uh, She's been with us before. She's a critic at large for Vox. Um, Ben, I'll have you get us started uh, as we head into talking to Emily about this. So there have been things added, as there tend to be in the um, Olympics this year, karate, skateboarding, uh, sport climbing, surfing. I don't know how much you've been able to see of any of those, although you seem to be so omnivorous. I'm guessing you've seen all of them (laughs) at this point. I don't know. How How are they working for you?
4: Yeah, um, I'm just going to say this straight away. Skateboarding has not lived up to what I was expecting. It's one of these ones that when it was announced, it was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, you've got snowboarding at the Winter Olympics, so why not have skateboarding? And I was expecting a very similar vibe, but I have to say it did not live up to expectations. It was quite interesting to watch, to put it nicely. Um, Surfing, great culture of it in in Australia, of course, and it's it's never really been a great spectator sport to watch on, on TV or, or live, but I think it's sort of turned out fairly decent the way they've, they've shown it, at least the coverage. And it's been quite entertaining to kind of see it, uh, you know, a little bit more than that. And I mean, with the return of baseball and softball, I, I think long overdue, and it's very sad to see that they're already cutting it from Paris, but you know despite the fact that we're a bit sad in australia that we sadly uh lost to mexico and uh, will not be playing for a medal tomorrow um we i've enjoyed watching it come back i've always enjoyed Mm. watching those sports Uh, i'm I'm looking forward to the others as well
3: yeah let's have uh, emily kind of tell us a little bit about how how this came to be and how it's uh, as you've just alluded to, coming not to be, I should say, skateboarding has now been canceled because a security guard came out of the building and told them to all get off the property. So, uh, <laughs> so no more skateboarding. <laughs> they just get out of here, kids. Uh, so, Emily, uh, you wrote for Vox about this. Um, these yeah. six new uh, for to, new for Tokyo sports, and one of the things you you pointed out, as Ben just alluded to, the Paris Summer Games in 2024, uh, you're going to keep skateboarding and sport climbing and surfing, but not the other stuff. What's going to happen in Paris?
1: Yeah, uh, first of all, uh, I want to say that um, skateboarding is great because people fall over in it a lot, and I enjoy seeing (laughs) that. Uh, True. In in three years in Paris, um, they are dropping baseball, softball, and karate uh, in favor of breakdancing, and there's a bunch of complicated reasons why that's happening, but the the main one is just sort of that – baseball and softball and karate are, A, not that popular in Paris, and B, they don't really have the facilities, especially for baseball and softball, which you have to have a stadium for, and uh, they don't seem to have that in Paris in the way that they do in Tokyo, where baseball is very popular, and where they almost certainly will in LA in 2028, because, you know, LA is full of baseball stadiums.
3: And skateboarders. I think Paris was considering and having Paris was considering having competitive smoking uh, as a, a, a possible <laughs> yeah. possible replacement sport. Yeah. But so, what, Emily? You 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 kind of wrote about like how who decides this and how do they decide it? I guess things that are popular with young audiences are are they, they sort of get to go to the front of the line.
1: Yes, yes. The sport that's being added in Paris in 2024 is breakdancing, and breakdancing was tried out at the 2018 Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires, and that was did very well there. It was very popular with everyone there, and so there's this thought that if we add breakdancing to the Olympics, you know, the younger audience might watch that isn't necessarily watching some of the more traditional uh, Olympic events. So there is sort of a focus on that, but there's also increasingly a focus on the host city itself, what it sort of thinks it can host, what it wants to host. And there's this wide pool of sports. I'm going to try and make this very simple, even though it's a complicated process. There's this wide pool of sports that are IOC uh, recognized, basically. Their international federation is recognized by the International Olympic Committee. And that means that those sports can then sort of compete and put in bids to be added to future Olympics. But they're putting it in... Uh, Olympic per Olympic, as opposed to something like track and field, which is always going to be in the Olympics. If you are, for instance, karate, you're bidding to be included in each individual Olympics. And then that list is narrowed down by the host city to a short list. And then the short list is narrowed down further. And that's how you end up with uh, you know, what's happening, what happened in Tokyo, where we have, these, we have these six sports added. Technically, the IOC counts baseball and softball as one sport because they share a federation. But I think it sounds very weird to American ears to say, um, you know, baseball, softball is one sport. So it, it sort of has been reported in the American media as six as six sports when it's technically five. But we don't have to dwell on that.
3: No, I did note in your article, I think that uh, in 2024, surfing will be held in the Parisian neighborhood known as Tahiti. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, it's going to be held nearly 10,000 miles away from Paris in Tahiti. Um, Tahiti, of course, you know, has has, uh, ties to the French, let's say. So uh, it is, is, you know, it sort of makes sense in that regard. But yeah, like if you think about the Olympics as being hosted by a city, uh, Tahiti is really not Paris. Whereas, you know, in LA, if surfing comes back, which again, there's sort of an indication that it will, like there are a lot of beaches right there where there's very good surfing.
3: So Ben, one of the things that always surprises me is that the cricket is not an Olympic sport, not because I like cricket so much, but because there are like so many people who really do like cricket. I, I, I guess I'm not going to ask you that. And also whether you think that there is a sport that really deserves to get in that hasn't so far.
4: Cricket's an interesting one, because I think in terms of participation, it's in the top five most participated sports and played sports in the world. And a lot of that comes down to obviously being so big in India. But mm-hmm. There is a real push, I think, uh, from the LA Olympics to to include it, just because the shortest form of the game, 2020, has taken off so well and it's really helping in developing cricket nations such as the US, which isn't really known too well for its cricket. But with Brisbane now getting the Olympics in 2032, I think there would be an even bigger push from Australia to include it. Outside of that, I mean, the one that always seems to miss out is squash. Uh, it's always on a short list of, of any Olympics and it just always misses out. And it's quite a, a big sport in Australia, obviously our sort of junior Olympics. or I guess the Commonwealth games kind of similar to your Pan Am games, uh, you know, squash has been a, a Commonwealth Games sport for a long time and, it's, it's always very popular. It's always fun to watch. And it's a sport, too, that's growing outside of sort of these markets where maybe it's not necessarily seen as, as a big sport. So I think, I don't know if I'm just being biased as an Australian to say <laughs> cricket, um, but uh, I think squash is legitimately a sport which I would love to see in the Olympics. You know I mean? Put it up there with table tennis, badminton and tennis. There's all these other racket sports. It's, yeah, it's entertaining to watch, and I think it would be one of these ones that deserves to be in the Olympics.
3: Emily, you threw a scare into me in your piece in what you mentioned the possibility that uh, a, a sports category or sports activity known, I guess, internationally as World Flying Disc, which has nothing to do with it with the latest UFO scare, could conceivably that's ultimate
1: Frisbee, right? Uh, yeah, yes. ultimate, ultimate Frisbee. Yeah. And like there is a, there is a sort of a, it hasn't officially applied to be included in the L.A. games, but there's still time. And I think there is sort of a thought that if it does, it might get in because it's a you know an american invention it's <laughs> popular in the u.s it's so on so on and so forth um
4: popular here i have great sport <laughs> i will <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: i will apply for transfer to the mars colony if that happens i am not yeah. <laughs> i will not remain on earth if that is going to be an olympic sport that is so wrong emily just before we run out of time you know so much stuff i mean the olympics obviously you know um aspire to and 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 have as part of their kind of internal and external mythology, the idea of being this sort of exalted place of formerly amateur competition. And there's, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of a purity of these nations going head to head on the the same turf. And then every time we find out what goes on behind the scenes, it's just completely horrifying, particularly in terms of the awarding of the actual cities and then what happens within the cities and the destructions of neighborhoods within the cities and all this horrible stuff. And what did you find out in terms of like, Adding sports, uh, adding you know, adding new activities and sports. There is it kind of kind of in that vein as well.
1: Well. I honestly, like so many things with the IOC, it is incredibly horribly corrupt, but (laughs) it is slightly less corrupt right now than it was, say, 20 years ago. Um, 20 years ago, if your sport was popular in Western Europe, you had a huge leg up over every other sport. Uh, One of the reasons baseball and softball struggled so much to get added to the Olympics is they're very popular in East Asia, in Oceania, and in um, the Americas, and that's not Western Europe. And, you know, you know, they it's, they struggled for many years to get added and they got added, and they've been taken out and pushed back in and like a lot of that is Western European bias. Now that has changed as the membership of the IOC has become more international. But certainly it is a situation where the big hurdle is getting your sports federation recognized by the IOC and that process is very murky and full of glad handing and there's lots of potential for corruption to be involved there. Um, one thing I think that I find fascinating is one of the sports federations that has been provisionally approved is the, uh, American football association, which is of course, you know, what we think of as the NFL here in the States. And like, that is fascinating to me. They're, they're, they're vying to have flag football added to the (laughs) 2028 Los Angeles Olympics. That, that, uh, bid is already in and like. American football is not that popular internationally. Like it, it certainly is, you know, played in a variety of countries, but it's not popular in the way that um in the way that like just general football, which we call soccer here, um, is. And I'm interested to see how that happened and if it leads anywhere. Because if we're talking about corrupt organizations that have long histories of like things that are sort of hushed up and quieted up. The IOC and the NFL would make very unlikely, like, partners.
3: Yeah, um, last question, too. I mean, you know, this whole idea of things kind of being added to sports and then being subtracted back out of sports, um, it—, it um And it seems like it would be disruptive to the mentality of these athletes. I mean, not that they're not busy doing things, you know, in in other levels of their sport the rest of the time. But there's always been this kind of notion, Okay, you know, I just finished these Olympics and then I've got four years to get ready for the next Olympics if I'm going to do that or three, I guess, in this case. But, um, you know, if you don't even know whether your sport is going to continue to be a sport or if you kind of know that it's going to toggle in and out, I would imagine that would sort of mess with your head and maybe your body as well
1: yeah absolutely i've been thinking about okay so surfing is is in uh tokyo is in paris probably will be in los angeles probably will be in brisbane say 2036 goes to montreal montreal is not a city with like a rich surfing tradition or like a protectorate that can host surfing like are they going to be obligated to include it in the way they would if surfing was automatically included in the olympics I don't think so. But then also you have this thing of like, here's four Olympics in a row where we've had surfing. Is it at that point too much of a tradition to ditch? Like the IOC adopted these measures to help keep the games manageable and make them small enough for different you know, countries to sort of toggle events in and out. But I do think that there ends up being kind of a tradition that underlies a lot of this, that's going to make it harder and harder to strip those events out. And I think long-term we might see the Olympics becoming bigger and bigger and bigger until perhaps they finally have to like reconfigure everything and get rid of maybe even some of the core sports that are, are very popular. Um, in 2013, they recommended removing wrestling and it didn't ultimately happen. But I think we might start to see things like that, where there's sports that are associated with the Olympics, but maybe have fallen out of favor, such as wrestling had, uh, might see their uh, their status as Olympic sports be threatened.
3: All right. We're going to say goodbye to Emily Vanderwerf, uh, a critic at large for Vox, but read uh, the piece about how sports get added. And then it's just uh, going to be me and Ben Waterworth for the final segment. And We'll just talk about really whatever Ben wants to talk about, uh, which should please him. Although I want to bring up the question of whether whether he was really serious about the idea that cheerleading could be added as an Olympic sport. Seems like, well, never mind. We'll talk about that after this. Just imagine, imagine there's no countries. I mean, that's a strange song, you know, for the Olympics. Because if there's no countries, how how would you even have the Olympics? Um, today's show was produced by celebrity producer Lily Tyson, doing her usual amazing work. Uh, and our technical producer is Cat Pastor, who's handling all these crazy elements here. Uh, and uh, as we uh, head down the home stretch here, we're going to just spend some time with Ben Waterworth, who is the uh, host. Uh, and creator of the podcast Off the Podium, which you really should subscribe to. It during the Olympics, if you, if you, I don't know, if you want to not be told by NBC all the time what you should be paying attention to uh, and how seriously you should be taking it. Um, so, uh, so Ben, I don't know. Maybe we could just back up for a second since we just did play Imagine and just talk about the opening ceremonies. Um, I feel like an opening ceremonies where the thing that everybody's going to remember is drones. You know, I mean, they were really cool drones, but there's something kind of anti-humanistic about that idea.
4: Yeah, look, I was not a fan of the opening ceremony. I labelled it basically on our show as probably the worst opening ceremony I've ever seen, which was thoroughly disappointing. Because you're right, you kind of only remember the drones, and I mean, I. I was going into this thinking that given it's Japan and their technology, that we were going to have this amazing sort of spectacle and particularly in COVID times with no crowd, you could turn this into something different. But the majority of it to me almost seemed like it was just some sort of high school version of an opening ceremony. It just, it just didn't fit, with uh what an opening ceremony should be and could be in these times so yeah between the drones and and treadmill girl i don't know how much media she made over there but she was trending very much here she was being made into memes and everything about uh you know dear old treadmill girl but um yeah, I, it was a bit underwhelming, but um, you know, un, unfortunately, it, it happens sometimes. I think we haven't really had a good opening ceremony since London. Um, yeah, well, you, you know, including Winter Games as well. Yeah,
3: James so, Bond, yeah. James Bond and the Queen. You're not going to be. You down. can't go past that. Yeah, it's going to be very. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think also the other thing that if I were planning this opening ceremony, I would be looking for something that didn't call too much attention to the absence of any crowd. And somehow or other, I felt that absence more keenly and more prominently, then then maybe I would have just in a kind of neutral state. I don't know exactly why that was. But even as the as the delegations started to parade in there, uh, the countries one by one, and there were these kind of strange little people doing this kind of wand kind of dancing, you know, next to them in this strange little white things. And I just thought, boy, it yeah. just feels very empty here all of a sudden.
4: Yeah, it's I think the thing that was surprising is that you didn't put the athletes in the stands. I I get the idea of keeping them out there because that's generally what they do during an Olympics, but fill it up somewhat. And it just, it just seemed very strange. And even through the speeches and everything and, and sort of, it was a real sad fact of it when you're seeing the, the Japanese flag getting risen up to the national anthem, you're seeing those empty seats behind it. I mean, I feel a lot of sporting competitions around the world have have worked around this by filling the seats with certain things, and I, I mean, as I know it's an Olympics, it's a little bit different, but yeah, it was it was kind of very interesting, particularly as well the pre-donations I felt took about an hour longer than it usually does, with about half the people, and I realized that a lot of that came to do with social distancing and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was it was very strange and, and very weird. Uh, well, I mean, let's be honest, we'll remember it for years to come. It would be a bad one, or the circumstances were under right.
3: Right. Um, so, you know, you guys, you and your confederates there on the podcast, you see so many different things, and I'm listening, and you're saying Tunisia and Taekwondo, and I'm thinking Tunisia and what? <laughs> and I guess my first question is, how do you manage to see so many things? I mean, it just. I mean, I realize you just don't sleep at all for days and days, but uh, <laughs> is there anything, any other secret that you have?
4: uh if i gave that away to you yes. right now colin then uh, you know I, I might lose my uh, residency status in this country we're very unique people here in australia we have got to adapt to all the uh the upside downness and the animals um i i guess it just comes from a place where you know a lot of the reason why i like the olympics is it's an exposure to a lot of sports that are not really prominent in australia and Therefore, I get very fascinated and intrigued by watching something like taekwondo or I've been watching a lot of fencing. Um, Handball is is an amazing sport that I love watching. And I think the great thing about modern technology is you know, the broadcaster here in Australia has a a free app and you can basically select any sport you want to watch rather than watching the main channel, which is generally, oh, we won a gold medal in swimming. Let's replay that same swimming event 50 (laughs) times during the day and ignore all the other sports. So it's kind of a case of just almost flicking channels to use an old term to going through the app going oh cool archery's on oh cool volleyball's on you know not a very big sport in australia so kind of just going between them all and then it's it's also a case of just sort of following some of the stories you know kind of seeing tunisian athlete who you're not really going to follow too much you know you mentioned simone biles people like that the big names that of course you're going to follow but Again, back to the whole point of an Olympic Games, it's it's not just about the superstars. You have some of these athletes who can come out of nowhere and do something. I mean, in weightlifting today, Philippines won their very first ever Olympic gold medal. Uh, it's stories like that that I love seeing. You know, in in the judo yesterday, we had a uh, Japanese siblings win. Uh, you know, gold in two different events. It's after that, French like uh, that.
3: After the French woman won, her, I think her semifinal in sixteen seconds. Uh, yeah, and that's one of those things where you don't get attached to any particular person or narrative, right? I mean, like come, exactly. come. I mean, I saw her do that, and I thought, oh wow, she's going to be a big star. Oh nope, 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 she's gone now. Um, yeah. And and similarly, I think a lot of people were pretty excited about this. I mean, this incredibly courageous and amazing story of this 12-year-old table tennis player from Syria, yeah. where it's very, very, very difficult to train, obviously, under these just cataclysmic conditions, uh, And but then th- that gone in straight sets, right?
4: Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, but that's the Olympics, though, isn't it? Like, again, you've got all these great stories about this young girl who, yeah, she goes out sort of in one, but like, she's achieved enough as it is just by making the Olympics. And I think this is you were mentioning before about professionalism in sport and kind of everything on those lines, but I think we lose track of what the Olympics are about. I mean, a lot of the reason why I love the Olympics so much is that I'm a sports tragic who was never good at anything. And as I often say, you know, <laughs> if you can't do, teach. And if you can't teach, well, talk to people, I guess. But, I mean, I was never capable of making an Olympics in anything. And if I was, just, just going to an Olympics would be enough for me. Of course, you're going to win a medal. Of course, you want to do well. But to have that honour to walk out, there, with your, you know, your country's flag on your, your clothing, and just represent your countries enough, and to see this story of that, I mean, it's so amazing to see that, and there's, there's so many other stories. Like, there's a 14 year old swimmer from Canada, Summer McIntosh, who finished fourth in the 400 meter uh, final, and. It's, it's interesting to kind of, I knew the background behind this uh, athlete and everything. I'd heard a lot about it because I was living in Canada, but sort of the way Australia sort of talks, almost condescending, like, oh, she's 14. She'll be back in four years, bigger and better than ever. She set two Canadian records and was within a second, I think, of winning a medal at 14. And it's just, it's incredible to think what somebody like that can turn into down the line, or this might be her only shot. And fourth at an Olympics is amazing. So Yes, yeah, stories like that is what makes the Olympics so good, and something we need right now in the world, really, to kind of focus on something a little bit different.
3: I think that's right. Uh, for more information, you're going to have to start listening to Off the Podium podcast, which I do—a po- podcast about the Olympics. Ben Waterworth is an Australian journalist, radio host, and he will be on the Australian cheerleading team when cheerleading is a sport. You will finally make the Oli- look. The, the bare-chested guy from Tonga can do like cross-country skiing oh. or whatever it is. You could certainly find something, Ben. There's something. There's there's a vacuum that you are uh, destined to fill and you'll get your give uh, me a
4: wife a yes I'm there absolutely <laughs> right. bring it on in Brisbane home <laughs> Olympics alright
3: Ben Waterworth thanks very much thanks to everybody else who uh, helped out today and uh, to Emily uh, and Rebecca for being on the show and thanks to Kat and thanks to Lily